we intentionally um, sang that song after that moment, because uh, for every parent in the room, we just want to remind you, the battle's already been won by Jesus. Um, I think I thought parenting was daunting when we had little ones, and then they became teenagers. And I was like, oh, okay. So I know that's an encouragement to those of you who are here today uh, with young, young people. Praise God, the battle's already won, right? Victory isn't Jesus. We've, we've got a baby in this room that's only a handful of weeks old, but we believe the battle's won in Christ. What a, what a glorious thing. This is always um, one of the most chaotic moments of, of uh, anything we do in church and such a beautiful moment as well. Um, praise God uh, for all these families. We have quite a few guests today who uh, you're kind of showing up in the middle of a series that we started back on Easter Sunday. So I'll do a quick recap here at the beginning to get us back kind of on track. We've called this series Fully Alive, and we started on Easter Sunday with John chapter 10, verse number 10, where Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I came that they may have life. What could be better than that? And have it abundantly. Not just that Jesus coming back to life means we could have life, but that we could be fully alive. And we contrast that with if, if we're not in Christ, if we don't have a relationship with Jesus, that means we're not fully alive, right? Well, actually, it's a little bit worse than that apart from Jesus. Our, our companion text in this series is Ephesians chapter 2. Which says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So there's this spiritual reality that apart from Jesus, we're dead and it affects the way that we walk. Like it affects our life. It's not just like some spiritual, invisible reality that it literally affects. We're, we're walking as though we're spiritually dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air... The spirit that's now working the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And we see in those three things the what what for hundreds of years the Christian world has talked about the three enemies of the soul, the things that are contrary to life abundant. That is the world, the flesh and the devil. And if it ended there, it would be this really sad text. But verse number four says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. His resurrection was our resurrection when we were in him. By grace, you've been saved. This is the invitation to be fully alive. So what does it look like to, to walk through life, not walking like we're dead anymore, but walking like we're alive and not just like we're alive, but that we're fully alive, experiencing abundant life. It's, it's that we are aware there's a battle. There's an opposition to this thing. And we're specifically fighting against this reality. A great book I read uh, just a couple years ago. It just came out uh, by John Mark Comer. The way he packaged the, the mission statements of the world, the flesh, and the devil are this. Deceptive ideas that intersect with harmful desires that are normalized and even celebrated and affirmed in a sinful society. 
That's the, the dance of deceptive ideas from the devil himself. They intersect with harmful desires. That's my flesh. They're normalized in a sinful society. That's the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil. This morning, we are going to talk about the devil. I'm so glad that you're a guest here today at Child Dedication. We're going to discuss the doctrine of the devil. And some of you are like, no, I have a teething child. This is totally appropriate. Or maybe you have a two-year-old. And you're like, yes, on Child Dedication, we should talk about the devil. I don't know. I don't know where, where you're at with your journey. But it's I believe can be, if you'll hang with me, a really helpful conversation, especially on a day like today. So I invite you please to grab your Bible. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible today, no worries. There's one underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, we have a tradition here before we jump in. We hold up our Bibles and we say a creed together uh, before we begin to unpack God's Word. And so if that's where you're at in your spiritual journey, then join with us. Let's hold up our Bibles and let's say this together this morning. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind, and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. We're going to go back to the Gospel of John again, just a couple chapters earlier. John chapter number 8. John chapter 8. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 841. John chapter number 8. What we find in John chapter 8 is Jesus says something incredible about himself. Um, those of you who, are, who were here on Easter, we talked about Jesus saying, I am the door. He said, I am the good shepherd. We said he also said, I am the resurrection and the life. Here in this incredible passage, he says, I am the light of the world. And he starts having this conversation with some religious people, specifically some Jewish people, about what it is to be the light of the world. They felt like that was a pretty dramatic statement. And so they're actually kind of arguing with him, uh, which I don't recommend arguing with Jesus. I've been there and done that, and it has not worked out well. And it didn't work out too well for them either. They're arguing a little bit with Jesus. And he tells them, you're just not listening to me, but if you'll listen to me, you'll experience... Everything that you want out of life. And he says this in verse 32. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. By the way, I still believe that's true today. I believe when we know the truth, we experience freedom. Well, they responded to Jesus statement like this and they said, what do you mean? We've never been captives to anybody. We've never been enslaved by anybody, which is really strange for a Jewish person to say. Literally, the second book of the Torah is called Exodus. From what? Enslavement. Like, a captivity. Like, literally, <laughs> Exodus, bro. Uh, anyhow. Now, in their generation, they hadn't experienced full-blown uh, enslavement. And so, maybe they just meant not our belief system or our family heritage. Maybe they just meant in their generation. I don't know. Either way, Jesus says, actually, if you've ever sinned, you're a slave to sin. And then he says something about their father, and they mentioned Father Abraham. And anybody in the room who went to church as a child back in the old school days, you all know that Father Abraham had many sons. And you also know that many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. 
So let's just, okay, that's enough. All right. If somebody starts doing right arm, I'm, we're going to get security to escort you out. Don't even do it. Don't do it. Resist. And it's true that culturally and even spiritually, they were children of Abraham. But they're refusing to accept the truth of Jesus. And he says a fascinating thing about their father. As a matter of fact, it's not the nice, passive, turn the other cheek form of the character of Jesus. It actually sounds kind of mean. Because Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. Now, what's not written in the text, but somebody had to go, well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> Surely somebody thought that, right? I don't recommend using that phrase. When your boss asks you to stay late tomorrow, please don't say, you're the son of Satan. My pastor said so. Please don't do that. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do. Remember, we talked about both the belief system and the spirituality and the walk, the doing, the living, right? You're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You're trying to make daddy happy. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Another English translation said he speaks his native language. For he's a liar. And the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. From this text, I want to make four quick observations about the devil. Uh, we're going to make the first three observations very quickly because really the, the heart of this, I want to park on the last observation. I just don't want to ignore the other things that Jesus said about the devil in this text because I, I think it's important for us. The first thing Jesus seems to say about the devil is that he is real. The devil is real. He said, you're of your father, the devil. And he says that implying not that the devil is some mystical creature. Not that the devil is a cartoon character. Again, I, I might be dating myself here. I'm 45 years old, so I grew up watching good cartoons. <laughs> cartoons nowadays have all been ruined. I, wa I grew up on the ones that were like, you know, violent. They were great. <laughs> Tom and Jerry, man, they both needed to be in anger management, but they were awesome. And do you remember the one where Tom dies? And goes to hell and appears before the devil. I don't know why it hasn't made it to 2023. <laughs> it's fascinating. Anyways. I think Tom and Jerry has informed more of our doctrine maybe than Jesus has. That we picture that caricatured red suit, pointy tail, pitchfork thing. And what Jesus says is, no, there, there is such a being. He actually does exist. And that might not be the happiest thought today, but we just believe reality is good for us. We constantly make light of this. Jesus nowhere mentions foosball. Foosball the devil, Bobby. If you don't know what that's from, I don't know if we can be friends. 
No, it's it's real. The word in the original language here comes from diabolos, diabolical. The word means to slander or to accuse. As a matter of fact, other places he's called the accuser. He's called Satan or the Satan. He's called the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer. If you are in our Sunday morning Bible study this morning, you heard him referenced to as the ancient serpent who leads the whole world astray or as the great dragon who deceives the whole world. Which is really fitting because he's often called the deceiver. According to Jesus, the devil is real. Second observation Jesus makes about him is that he is influential. He has influence on planet earth. He says your will is to do his desires. He's influencing your actual behaviors. Which is why we want to respond to the bad things we do and say, the devil made me do it. The reality is he did not. But he may have very well encouraged and influenced the bad behavior. He didn't make us do it. Jesus sees the devil as a real existing being who is at work presently in the world with more power and more influence than anyone other than himself. He is the evil behind the evil that we see in much of the world today. The great C.S. Lewis said there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch and every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. He's seeking to take influence from a universe governed by a good and loving God. He's real and he has influence. The third observation that Jesus makes is that the devil is deadly. He was a murderer from the beginning. The question that we'll answer in just a moment is how does he kill? Is it obvious? Does he have these weapons of mass destruction? We'll talk about that in a minute, but there's no doubt his intention is to kill, to take life, to spread death. He wants to watch a good world Burn. Wherever he finds life, he seeks to destroy it. Where he finds beauty, he works to disfigure it. Where he finds love, he works to distort it. Where he finds unity, he works to divide it. And where he finds life abundant, fully alive, human flourishing, he works to demolish it. He is anti-life and he is pro-death. For real. Back in the late 80s and early 90s, Dana Carvey made famous a character on Saturday Night Live called the church lady. If you've ever seen that skit, then you can't acknowledge that in church. He would describe terrible things and then say, I wonder what made that happen. Could it be Satan? Right? The fact is, when we describe the worst things that exist in the world, yes, that actually probably was the influence of actual evil in the form of an actual enemy. We believe the devil is real and he is influencing the world towards death. 
The question is, how does he do so? And that's the part that I think can be helpful for us if we'll have the difficult conversations. What is the weapon he is using to really influence the world towards death? It's the fourth observation by Jesus. The devil is a liar. And if I would put a parenthesis next to that, I would say, and he always has been and he always will be, it's the only tool in his toolbox. The problem is he's really good with the tool. He's really good at lying. As a matter of fact, he's so good at lying, he will lie to us and we will actually hear our own voice. He's a liar and he's skilled at it. Jesus says he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I just love that language. What that means is where there's truth, he has to move. He can't stand where there's truth. I feel like the devil's on my back. Expose yourself to truth. Speak truth. Cling to truth. He can't stand it. Literally. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He speaks his native language. He is fluent in lies. For he is a liar. And more than that. He's the father of lies. He is the origin point of lies. He is patient zero. Every lie that's ever been whispered or believed or spoken in the history of humankind all shares the same baby daddy. It's the devil. We talked on Easter Sunday about John 10.10. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And we talked about Jesus' mission and Jesus' method, right? Uh, The verse before that, John 10, uh, verse 9, Jesus says, I'm the door. In verse 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. So if you remember that, we said Jesus' mission as the door is what? To give us his life. I'm the door. I invite you to myself that you'll have life and have it abundantly. How does he do that? We see his method For his mission through the fact that he's the good shepherd, which is what? He gives us his life. He lays down his life for the sheep. His mission is to give us his life. His method is to give up his life. But that's not the end of the story because a couple verses later he says, I alone have the authority to lay down my life and to take it up again. That's the resurrection glory is that he's alive enough to give us his life. But this morning, we're contrasting that with the enemy, right? So what is the devil's mission? The devil's mission is to take life. If Jesus' mission is to give life, how more opposite do we get? His mission is to take life, to spread death. How does he do that? His singular method. He has one method. He has one trick. He is a one-trick pony. It is to give lies. It is to spread deception. That's it. That's all he's ever been able to do. He is influential and he is powerful, but his power is incredibly limited. He can't alter reality. He can just get us to doubt it. He can get us to believe in alternative reality. Jesus came to give us life. The enemy came to give us lies. 
the father of lies, the origin point of lies. What's really interesting to me, this passage is the most in-depth teaching about the devil in all of the Gospels. And in this passage, Jesus doesn't talk about demons or exorcisms. He doesn't talk about natural disasters, tsunamis and hurricanes. He doesn't talk about famine. He doesn't talk about disease, cancer, dementia, in, in their setting, leprosy. He could have mentioned all of those and it would have been appropriate. But instead, he has a very logical debate with religious leaders about truth and lies. His mission is to spread lies. The question is, what does that look like? Because my fear today would be that we would go, of course he's a liar. I'm so glad I don't believe any lies. I'm so glad I've been in church long enough to be an expert in truth. What does it look like to be influenced by these lies that literally influences the way we live our daily lives. Psychologist named David Benner said it's not so much that we believe lies as that we live them. It is one thing to tell a lie. It is one thing to believe a lie. But the mission of our enemy is that we would actually live them out. Let me describe what I mean. If, if at some point in time we come to a moment in life that that we believe the lie, we are unlovable. We don't deserve to be loved. Maybe it's the rejection of an authority figure, even a parent. Maybe it's a, a bad breakup in high school and you're like, man, I really am just junk. Maybe it's failure at a job and you lose your job and you think, I'm just unworthy. If we actually begin to believe that lie, we will live it. And what that looks like is we'll allow other people to treat us with disrespect in demeaning and harmful ways because we think we don't deserve any better. Or we'll start to treat other people with disrespect and in demeaning and harmful ways. Because we just feel so unlovable on the inside. And here's what's heartbreaking. If we live that lie long enough, what was false will end up becoming true. We'll actually Act like a rather unlovely human being. Because we lived a lie. That we're unlovable. And most of these lies don't make headlines, right? There's not, they're not interrupting the NBA playoff game with breaking news. Hey, Fred believed a lie about himself today. It's way more subtle than that. Because the headline might would say, a guy who's been consistently told by his father he's only as good as what he achieves becomes a raging workaholic. A girl who spends hours comparing herself to airbrushed, photoshopped images of fake people on Instagram comes to believe that she is unlovely and unworthy to be loved. Maybe you've experienced somebody walk out on you in life. Many of us who've lived life long enough, someone at some point in time has walked away. And if we begin to believe the lie that everyone will always abandon us, it will infect every relationship we have. 
if a breakup leaves you believing you'll never be good enough, it will cause you to live that truth out in a dating pattern that will be harmful. It's not so much that we believe lies. It's that we live them. But that's all his strategy. That's us beginning to understand the father of lies. For our last few moments, I'm going to talk about what is our strategy. And that's why we started in verse number 30, uh, 23, rather, not verse 44. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The reality is the devil only has one weapon. And the other reality is we only need one also. It's truth. That's it. When we're in the truth, we're free. Now, there's a couple interesting things about this idea that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is implying you're not free. He's actually whispering to those listeners, you're in bondage to lies. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul would repeat that same instruction to young Timothy. Second Timothy chapter number two, he talks about proclaiming truth so that the devil who has taken us captive to do his will would be disarmed. We do so with truth. We're in bondage to false ideas. This is why John Mark Comer said, this is why Jesus did not come as a soldier or a political ruler or an artist. He came as a rabbi. What's a rabbi? A teacher. A truth teller. (laughs) Jesus came to set the world free by being truth incarnate. And Jesus is still in the business today of liberating us with the weapon of truth. Setting his people free and inviting them into life abundantly through truth. And, and I love that Jesus didn't just say, I'm the truth and I will set you free. He says, you can know. You can know the truth. How hopeful is that? It's not just that there is truth. Oh, there's truth and there's error. Okay. I hope I can find it. I'm on a quest. Jesus says because he had come to invite us to life, he said, you can know the truth. It can actually be knowable. I will say this is why for 50 years this church has sacrificed to invest in Christian education. The reason that Temple Day's daycare and preschool begins at a very young formative age to to speak truth over young tender hearts is because we desperately want the next generation to come out into life with a set of lenses that can quickly diagnose lies and expose them to the truth. It's the reason in our Wednesday night community groups and our Sunday morning group, we've encouraged you this spring to get in the word. And let's talk about the word. It's interesting. I've, I've heard some feedback of, hey, we're all doing this Bible study method, the sword method. And some have been like, I don't like this method. L- let me say two things. 
It's not my favorite method either. It was just one that we could all do together. There's, there's a million different tools of how to study the Bible. But I think some of us haven't liked it because it's work. <laughs> I have to think. I have to look stuff up. I have to study. Ugh. And yet, if the weapon that leads us into life abundant is truth, then what better to have some sweat equity in? To become men and women of the word. I uh, I just didn't think we'd have this many guests today for the story I'm about to tell. Because um, it's a little bit sarcastic, but that's never stopped me before. Um, one of my uh, most enjoyable authors to read is a guy named Mark Batterson. And one of his older books that wasn't super popular. I just started reading it this past week. And um, I'm almost done. I can't fully recommend it. I still have two chapters left. So i got to finish it before I can recommend it. So far, it's been great. Um, but it's a book called Primal. And in it, he talks about as a pastor, he said, it's just so harmful when somebody leaves the church and says, I'm not being fed. And if you're new to church, you're like, I don't know what that means. But if you've been around church for any minute, that, that's a thing that people use with, including with churches that like have their own colleges, right? I'm just not being fed enough. It's a thing. And he said, it's hard for me to hear because he said, I try to preach every sermon like it's my last one. But then he said this, he said, let me push back on this a little bit though. My kids learn how to feed themselves when they were toddlers. Maybe if we think we're not being fed, it's not about where we are. It's about how hard we're working to grow in truth. And this is what he wrote. He said, I'm afraid we've unintentionally fostered a subtle form of spiritual codependency in our churches today. It's easy to let others take responsibility for what should be our responsibility. So we let our pastors study the Bible for us. Here's a newsflash. The Bible was unchained from the pulpit nearly 500 years ago during an era of history called the Middle Ages. God's word is among the people today. And we live in 2023. We don't just have God's word. We have it in dozens of different English translations to help us understand it. We have dozens of online free study tools that are relatable and written not for theologians, but for normal human people. And in addition to that, we have entire libraries of good Christian books that have been written for us to help us understand truth. And in addition to that, there's thousands of podcasts that help us unpack truth. In addition to that, there are millions of sermons on YouTube today. And some of them are hot garbage, so please be careful. But I didn't mean to say that out loud. We have more opportunity to grow in the knowledge of truth than any generation that's ever lived. If anybody should be the ultimate lie detectors, it's the people of God on planet Earth today. If you've been wondering why there is a neon softball on stage. In that book, um, Mark Batterson talked about the human brain. The human brain behind its protective covering is about the size of a softball. Not a peanut, despite what you were told as a child. It's a softball. 
Weighs about three pounds. Here's why that's amazing. Our little softball that weighs three pounds has the capacity to learn a brand new piece of information every single second of every single minute of every single hour of every single day for 300 million years. You're like, Doug, I don't know my Netflix password. That can't be true. It is incredible. As men and women who bear the image of God, it is incredible the capacity we have to learn new truth. It's amazing, but it's also a responsibility. This is what Batterson said. He said, learning isn't just a luxury, it's a stewardship. Here's why that's so important. Almost every waking second today, we are bringing in information. And I know this is overly simplistic, but it's also true. We are bringing in information at every moment that is quite simply either true or it's false. And many of us are being passive on our information reception. And what I believe, with all my heart, is that if we'll develop our own relationship with God's Word, we'll begin to filter that information to say, is this a lie? Is this harmful? Some of us need to grow the muscle of listening to ourselves better. My favorite author is Paul David Tripp. He says, nobody is more influential in your life than you are. Because nobody talks more to you about you than you. And some of us are just on a steady diet, a steady stream of fake news. From ourselves to ourselves. And God's inviting us to grow in truth so that the harmful deceptions that are bombarding us, we can protect our softball. Say, not today. Literally. We use that phrase all the time. And he, he's like, what? I don't have anything to do with that. You're busy lying to yourself. No, let's actually become men and women who are leveraging the responsibility of our minds to grow in truth. So my closing question is this. This morning... Are we believing any lies? Are we believing lies that that we are not worthy of God's love? Because he says we are. He has a cross to prove it. Are we believing the lie that we are unlovable and unloved? Are we believing a lie about our bodies or about our sexuality? To the young parents in the room today, are we believing lies about whether or not we're perfect parents? Whatever that means. Are we believing any lies about our past? And are we believing any lies 
about the hope of our future. Because what I believe Jesus wants to do is to set us free with truth. He's actually already done the work to do so. He came so that we might have life and have it abundantly.